This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service at Restoration Road in Snohomish, Washington, October 18, 2015. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at www.restorationroadchurch.com. Well, if you open your Bibles to uh, the first book and the first chapter, again, uh, we go through verse by verse books of the Bible, and uh, we are spending... uh, time in Genesis chapter 1, and perhaps a little more time than I first planned, but this is where the Lord has us, and it's good. I'm going to read actually just the first um, five verses to kind of give you a sense of uh, where we're headed, and then um, uh, we'll be in different places. But God's Word says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So this past Sunday, as... uh, For those who are on an e-newsletter or uh, if you've read my blog, which was posted on Facebook, uh, you learned that I preached a a sermon last week on the six days of creation, and uh, I would encourage you to listen to it if you haven't yet. Uh, And I began that particular sermon by reading from the Psalms. And so I read uh, actually Psalm 19, which uh, we've read several times. The first couple verses say, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The point of beginning with that psalm, and I think uh, a good place to begin anytime you open the book of Genesis, was to remind us of the true purpose of creation, and that the true purpose of creation was to make much of God and is to make much of God. And so as I approached that text, essentially what I was hoping to do was to help us avoid maybe spending so much time asking the how questions, which is our tendency, and help us to focus on the why questions, the larger questions, and perhaps the more important questions. And as, uh, as we've spent time with this, and if you spend any time with this, you'll see it's difficult sometimes to ask these kinds of questions, especially with this particular text, because of the great differences that exist in our understanding of the how of the six days of creation and how it unfolded. And so my hope was to try and navigate this uh, great divide, we'll call it, between, it seems, science and faith, for lack of a better comparison, Not by avoiding it, but trying to instead direct our eyes to where I believe we should focus instead or most of the time. And sadly, or surprisingly, not sad, uh, the vastly divided, and I mean uh, vastly divided, uh, responses to um, that sermon, which is unlike, I mean, I receive uh, information, we'll call it, uh, responses to my sermons every so often, but there was a pile on a very clear uh, two teams, and um, it revealed that my attempts at navigating that tension may have not fully been accomplished. Um, and really what was more concerning is this, and this is why I encourage you to listen to sermon, uh, I was 
concerned that the beauty of what was said may have become overshadowed by what was not said in that sermon. And so I'm, I'm considered the lead pastor uh, of this church, uh, the lead shepherd, but I'm not the only shepherd. And so this is a great opportunity to make sure you understand something, that I fulfill my role in submission to the authority of the elder board, which is a group of godly men um, whom I love dearly. And they are a group of men, we are a group of men who are mutually submitted to one another in love. And our elders uh, and our leaders are humble enough to ask hard questions. And by God's grace, they do that. And by God's grace, I believe we, our elders and our leaders, are humble enough to listen to one another. And so I want you to understand that uh, our preaching of what amounts to the text again um, is an expression of our love for one another and particularly the love for the church. And that's why uh, it may feel redundant, but please know that it's not. Um, but because I believe that the power of salvation lies with God's word, through Spirit alone, uh, I do not feel compelled to devote my time or our time to exposing the presumed lies of science or the weaknesses of every other position that happens to disagree with my own. You'll need to understand that as a church, we don't have a definitive, precise position on what I'm going to talk about, but I am going to share my own. And as I have, as a shepherd, as one of the shepherds, I have responsibility, without doubt, to protect from false teachers. Knowing that, uh, I don't believe that every view that I believe untrue is also biblically indefensible. That makes sense. But as a lead pastor, I also have the responsibility to feed the flock more than just a plate full of ambiguity. So, more than just feed, because you need to understand my perspective on the church and my perspective uh, for, for anyone as, as a member. Uh, your job is not to sit, get fed, and get fat. That's not your job. Your job is to certainly get fed, and it is to take what you have uh, come to know and to make it known. And as such, uh, I have the responsibility to make, you know, communicate what I believe God's Word to, to say, and I say we, the elders, what it says, in a way that's biblical, memorable, and reproducible. It's not enough just to be biblical. It's not enough just to be memorable. It has to also be reproducible, that you have to be able to take what is made known and make it known, which means that can't be accomplished if all you do throughout your life is regurgitate what the pastor says. You have to test what the pastor says through your own study and learn and grow. And I can't hold your hand forever, so you have responsibility not to quote Sam and tell people to listen to the podcast. You need to quote this more than any man that might be wise learned, or has the opportunity to teach. Know your Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. There is nothing more important. But as I stated in the previous sermon, but didn't explain, today, so in other words, if I walk out and die, 
Today, I can be best described as a creationist who believes that the world was created in six literal 24-hour days, and the earth is probably less than 10,000 years old. So today, I believe that this is the truest understanding of the biblical text. And because I believe um, that the Bible teaches that our Creator is sovereign, that our Creator is unchanging, that our Creator is eternal and all-knowing and all-powerful, I believe He created the world in a very specific way. And this is where I want to help it be memorable to you. He created it in a way that was supernatural, which few will disagree with me on as I explain it, in a way that was sudden, which many in the world will disagree with, and in a way that was simple, which is where I find we disagree a lot in the church. Supernatural, sudden, and simple. A lot of S's. I'm a big alliteration fan. You'll find that out if you spend any time. English teacher, deal with it. All right. To begin, the Bible teaches very simply, as we read Genesis 1-1 and following, that the creation of the world was supernatural. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By saying that the Bible teaches that the creation of the world was supernatural, what I mean is that the world came into being in a way that is entirely different from anything that can or will ever be observed in the universe. It is the kind of thing that can never, ever, 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 ever be observed. It came in a supernatural way. The word beginning uh, in the Hebrew is a word that is only used of God. It's a word that describes um, His act of creating out of nothing. Ex nihilo is what Latin would be. That only God can create or call into existence that which does not exist prior to that moment. As Romans 4.17 says in describing God, that Paul prays to God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Ironically, science itself confirms this concept through the first law of thermodynamics that basically says matter or the energy required to make matter can neither be created nor destroyed. So what's that mean? Well, in other words, nothing is created today apart from that which has been created. I was reminded of a joke someone told me once where an atheist was talking to God and the atheist said, well, I can create life. God said, really? Let's see. So God says, here, he took dirt, breathed life into it. And the atheist's like, you can do that. And he reaches down, and God's like, whoa, 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 get your own dirt. <laughs> so you get my meaning, right? Nothing can be created today apart from that which has been created. And that means that there are only two options for the origins of all matter. One is that it's eternal. It's always been around. And one is that it appeared at some point in the past, the finite past. And the false belief that matter itself is eternal is really man's attempt at rejecting uh, a doctrine that, that most men 
find foolish, the idea of God creating out of nothing. Ironically, there's much agreement today in science that matter is no longer eternal or thought that, that there was a starting point somewhere. As I said a few weeks ago, uh, if you believe the first verse of the Bible, as I have explained it, that God did create out of nothing supernaturally, believing in things such as a global flood or the parting of the Red Sea or a virgin birth or the healing of the blind miraculously or the resurrection, it's really not that difficult. The Bible plainly says that God created the universe out of nothing and that everything physical came to be as a result of the actions of a spiritual being on nothing, out of nothing. Now, according to Romans 1, if you would spend time there, it describes creation, the things that we can learn from it about God. And what it tells us is that the study of the natural world is supposed to direct us toward the truth that there is a supernatural creator behind creation. What that means is that science is a gift given to reveal God's existence and even aspects of His nature. That's what Romans 1 tells us. But all of God's gifts are abused. Every single one of them. Food, abused. Drink, abused. Language, abused. Relationships and people, abused. Sexuality, abused. It's, they're all abused. Science is no exception. Sin prevents us from naturally, if you will, coming to the conclusion that there's a supernatural creator. And men, in their sin, attempt to come up with all kinds of natural and somewhat weird at times explanations for our supernatural origins, including everything from aliens to apes to other weirdness. And theories like evolution are, by definition, anti-theistic and in direct conflict with the Bible from the first verse. I believe the Bible teaches that the world was created supernaturally, and that's the first thing. And again, there's not very many Christians who would argue that. The Bible also teaches that creation was sudden. What does that mean? Well, it means that the tension between faith and science is deepened when we learn that the Bible teaches that creation was sudden and not a process. That everything that came into being came into being so instantaneously. Psalm 33, 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. So according to the just plain words of Scripture, the Big Bang, which is not a scriptural term, but not even a term invented by a believer, actually, but the Big Bang, if you will, the beginning, was not followed by a big, long process of development. In one moment, there was only darkness, and the next moment, there was light. And the supernaturalness of creation is accompanied by the suddenness of creation. And as I shared last week, I think the creation of the days is a very 
amazing picture of the recreation of our souls. And if we do the reverse analogy, what we see is that when an individual is saved by Jesus, when they are awakened by the light of Jesus, they are immediately, instantaneously, and suddenly transitioned from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. However, when the scientists come out and declare the world to be billions of years old, many Christians find themselves struggling not to look like anti-intellectual idiots, or feeling like that at least. But I will just plainly say that it's not anti-intellectual to believe in a God who could make a chicken without an egg or a universe that appears older than it is. When God commanded the waters to bring forth, in verse 20, I believe it is, marine and flying creatures on what amounts to the fifth day, I don't believe that God was commanding a natural process for evolution to start up. It was God bringing forth something from water, if left alone, would never bring that forth. But he acted supernaturally upon it in the same way that Jesus brought forth wine from water like that. Do we understand how long a process it takes from water to become wine? There isn't a process to turn water to wine, is the point. Even though God used pre-existing natural materials, he acted upon them in a supernatural way to give what was lifeless life suddenly. And it is true that our understanding of Genesis is going to influence your convictions and understanding of miracles because our understanding of Genesis shapes our view of God. Again, it always goes back to who God is. So to paraphrase one writer, unlike our finite minds and powers, the infinite God does not need to go through a long process of trial and error to accomplish his goals. But the question remains, how old is the earth? Because it just looks so darn old. Science, as I said, will tell you billions of years. And Christians will say that either God created to look old or the flood changed everything or both. Nevertheless, the apparent, I say apparent, measurable age of the earth is, feels like a challenge because Genesis, the book, at least the first 11 chapters, indicates it's fairly young. Follow genealogies and you just kind of do the numbers and the math and you're like, it seems like it's pretty young. Traditional Judaism holds that in 2015, the earth is 5,775 years old. So about 6,000. And Christians and non-Christians have employed the Genesis account to mean all kinds of things in order to try and marry these seemingly you know, divided ideas. Some will say scientists are just flat out wrong when they go on to lengthy explanations as to why different ways to measure are inaccurate and I don't really desire to do that here. Some say the earth is, as I said, made old. Some say the flood, as I said, changes everything. Some just go, nope, it must just mean days are really long and they're not real days. And some argue that the earth was uninhabitable in the time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. But then, 
six literal days commenced and made the world habitable. What we have to at least be is honest and not fearful to admit that the Bible does not conclusively say how old the earth is. We don't know. I have my opinions. We don't decisively know. It's, it's that Deuteronomy 29, 29 passage where it says, you know, there's much that God has revealed and there's much that he's left a mystery. And doggone it, Christians, they seem to spend so much time on debating the mysteries, not what God has revealed. Or delineating which is a mystery and which is revealed, and it just gets silly. We don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is that the Bible says that the world was created suddenly. I do believe it was created supernaturally, and the Bible does teach that creation was simple. And this is where we get into what a day is. And I want you to understand something really important, that a simple explanation does not make one a simpleton. A simpleton is someone who is basically an idiot doesn't know, just can't think very deeply. I think oftentimes the simplest explanations are the actual right ones. And so having a simple explanation does not make one a simpleton. And it's important to understand the Bible was not written for the educated theologians or the intellectual scholars. It was written for the normal, everyday Israelite. The Holy Spirit inspired the words of God in such a way that they are simple to understand. And even though in one of his letters, Peter is honest enough to say, like, oh, Paul's stuff, really hard to get. Moses' words here are not. Genesis 1.5 says that God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and it was morning the first day. I believe that the simplest reading of this text in original Hebrew or translated English leads the unbiased reader of which I'm not sure actually exists that they should conclude that creation took place over six plain, old-fashioned, 24-hour little days. So I, I've got four reasons for this. And this is not the most important part of the sermon, but I'm going to share them because I think that's important especially for those of us who will never do the study ourselves. I believe it's important for us to have a starting point that even if you end up disagreeing from that point, that's okay, you started somewhere. And as I said, to offer you a plate of ambiguity doesn't probably help. So, four things really simply. Number one, first I believe that the word day means day. The Hebrew word for day is yom, and it's used thousands of times in the Bible. In a few places, they say few, this word can refer to an indefinite time period. The intended meaning, though, is usually dictated by the context of the passage. So if a passage in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, uses the word day, you figure out by the words around it, what are we talking about? And a few times that can be an indefinite time period. But when there is a Numerical adjective, yes, I'm an English teacher. A numerical adjective, which is just a number that describes, like 
first, second, third. Its meaning is always then restricted to 24 days, 24-hour days. Even without the adjective, though, if you were to drop that off, the word appears nearly 700 times and means literally a day. And the truth is that even non-believing scholars agree that the most common usage of this word and the usage in Genesis 1 is 24-hour days. These are non-believing. And that is really why most mainstream science rejects the biblical account from the beginning because they know what it says. And it doesn't work with their philosophical presuppositions about the age of the world, age of the earth. That's the first thing. My opinion, a day's a day's a day's a day. Secondly, uh, I believe that the phrase evening and morning describes a rotation of the earth. And the repeated phrase morning and evening qualifies the meaning of each of those days. And the everyday normal, not opposed to abnormal, but just regular reader would simply understand the simple meaning that the earth is completing one 24-hour revolution as we observe today, ironically, according to science. 24 hours for the earth to rotate. Doesn't mean it couldn't have rotated slower. God has slowed down the earth before. Read Joshua 10. But it's likely a 24-hour day because that's how we understand morning and evening, and I don't know any valid for me, convincing reason why we should understand it else differently. It's likely that this is what an Egyptian-educated Moses who wrote Genesis meant as the Egyptians were the ones to divide a day into two 12-hour periods and measure it by two big obelisks. Some have taken issue with the fact that on the seventh day, the day in which God rests, which I'll preach in a couple weeks, has no evening and morning attached to it, and therefore never ends. As a result, instead of taking the six previous days as a model to understand the seventh day, I think it's somewhat foolish to take one day and go, we must re-understand these six days. That just is silly. Not only is that foolish, as we start to study the Sabbath commands in Exodus we realize the importance of understanding it as an actual day, as an endless time period of rest, seems awesome until you actually read the details of the Sabbath and you're like, if that lasts forever, oh no. The rules and things attached to that make that uh, not understandable and not reasonable. Third, I believe that the references to days outside of Genesis, but quoting Genesis, have to be literal days, otherwise it makes it difficult. We would struggle to interpret other passages in the Old Testament if they weren't days. Passages like Exodus 20, where it lays out the command saying, For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the seventh Sabbath day and made it holy. The six days of creation are somewhat necessary. Um, and what I mean is that God designed everything intentionally. And he, told, he tells his story not in some random accidental uh, manner. And 
the story that begins with Israel and extends all the way to Christ. You can just go read the book of Hebrews and see the complexity with which he tells the story in order to point us to Jesus. And I even believe the seven days of creation provide a pattern for us to understand everything that's going on. And the seven days of creation very much govern the lives of the Israelites. And lastly, I believe that the word days is linked to the words years in Genesis 1.14. It says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now, some people would argue that creation or the appearance of the sun and the moon on the fourth day means that's where the true days began. And you can see the logic behind that. Even if you disagree with it, you understand why someone may come to that conclusion. But I believe, and I think it's important to remember, that the earth does not need the sun and the moon in order to rotate around in 24 hours. And that light and darkness and morning and evening existed on day one. But I believe the word years here helps us and that it's connecting what are already present fixed movements of the earth and they're now being referenced or measured, if you will, by the sun, stars, and the moon. Well, there you go. Creation was supernatural. It was sudden. And it was simple. And there's certainly a lot more I could say about that. But I do believe that this position is truest to the, the text and best upholds what we'll call the veracity or truthfulness of the word, the historicity of it, which means there were real stuff that really happened with real people, and the authority of Scripture. But i got a few other things to say. I want to remind us of a few things that are important for our church as a whole. The great theologians of the Protestant Reformation coined the phrase sola scriptura. We teach this in our membership class. There are five solas. And sola scriptura means basically that Scripture alone is our final authority. That we don't believe anything above the Bible. But that does not mean that we don't believe anything but the Bible. In other words, we don't only read the Bible and reject any information not directly from the Bible. We are free and encouraged to explore all areas of study, including science, but to submit whatever we learn to the Bible if and when they contradict. Now, I believe that one's position on the age of the earth, even an old earth, does not necessarily compromise the authority of Scripture, nor does it necessarily evidence a non-literal approach to interpretation. I say not necessarily because there are certainly those who hold to different positions than I, and have rejected the authority of Scripture, and are not reading the Bible literally. But not all. 
And while there are many positions that are without question biblically offensive and biblically untenable, there is more than one position that is biblically defensible. What is for certain is that our conviction about the nature and the authority of Scripture should lead us to humility in holding our doctrinal positions. The Scriptures themselves reveal something that's very important for us to remember. They reveal that we are totally depraved. And by totally depraved, I mean sin has affected every aspect of who we are. What we think, what we feel, what we say, what we do, we are not absolutely depraved, which means we'd all be Adolf Hitler-ish or worse. Even Hitler could have sinned more. But we are totally depraved. And even though we look at science and think, man, their understanding of the stars is incomplete and tainted by sin, let us not forget that our understanding of God is incomplete and often tainted by sin. In other words, we can get things wrong. And if you're a Christian for any amount of time, my guess is your theology is going to change over time. There are certain things that are not and should never change. Jesus is God, period. Jesus rose from the dead. The Trinity, yes. But there are others that will change over time that are not as essential. I think what is most concerning as I've kind of spent time thinking about this and engaged with many brothers and sisters who all love each other, I think what I'm more concerned about is not getting things wrong, because I'll tell you right now, I'm going to get things wrong. It's when people believe they've got all things right, and they do so in all the wrong ways. So if you have your Bible, I would ask you to turn to the book of Revelation briefly. And I think this is the more important point that we need to remember. The book of Revelation was um, a revelation given to the Apostle John, and it begins with Jesus. Uh, it's directly from Jesus, and Jesus gives uh, John some instructions to write down basically uh, seven letters to seven different churches. And collectively, these churches pretty much represent the different churches that we will find in Christendom today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And I would ask us to look at Revelation chapter 2 and consider the church of Ephesus, which Jesus addresses. And he says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus speaking. I know your works, Ephesus. They would say, I know your works, Restoration Road. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Good job, Ephesus. But 
I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. But who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I believe that this is a word for our church that's important. The church of Ephesus loved God's truth. They loved theology. They loved doctrine. They loved his word. And Jesus commended them. He commended them for their doctrinal precision. He commended them for rebuking false teachers. He commended them for standing up for the truth. And that is something that I pray we're commended for. But he also admonished them. And he warned them about their lack of love. And this is the danger that we could easily find ourselves in. Your position, our position on the age of the earth is important. But never, ever let it become too important. Those who declare other genuine Christians, mind you, I'm not talking about those who claim to be Christians. I'm not talking about the kinds of false teachers that are commended in terms of their fight against. I'm talking about genuine brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree, who come to different biblical conclusions. I would say that those who declare other genuine Christians of that kind as incompetent, dishonest, or otherwise compromised for holding different doctrinal positions with regards to these are in danger of themselves being condemned by Jesus. And while I believe that correct belief about the age of the, age of the earth, to quote my brother Brian Kirkman, is essential to your well-being, it is not essential to salvation. I think it's important and essential to your well-being, but it is not essential to salvation. That's not to say it's not important. That's not to say you shouldn't study. That's not even saying you shouldn't debate a bit. But it is hopefully putting it in a place of importance where it should be and not in a place of too much importance where it shouldn't be. Be reminded that Ephesus did not heed Jesus' warning. And Ephesus no longer exists, not a trace. But they got their doctrine right, darn it. And because we believe, I believe, that there is a dangerously fine line between knowledge that builds up and knowledge that puffs up, I would encourage all of us to hold our theological convictions, especially in secondary issues like this, with all humility. Never forget that a resurrected Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with two despairing men 
we're taught by Jesus directly that Moses, in all of the Bible, wrote about his life, death, and resurrection. In other words, he says the whole Bible, Moses, Genesis, is about Jesus. Our position and holding your position should lead us to a love of Jesus. Whatever position you hold, it should lead you to a love for Jesus. It's not enough to lead you to conclude that they're wrong and they're wrong and they're wrong. Whatever position you hold, it should lead you to Jesus. If your theology or doctrinal position does not lead you to love Jesus more, then honestly, you have the wrong theological position. And if your theology that's about Jesus does not lead you to be more loving towards others, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are holding your position wrongly. Whatever position you hold should lead you right here to the communion table, to the table where we are overwhelmed by our sin and at the same time overwhelmed by the love of God together. We are not united as a church. We don't gather as a church because we hold to every single theological position the same. We gather together because we, as we look at one another, our brothers, sisters in Christ, we understand that what is most important in our identity is the fact that we are sinners saved by grace. And together, as we study Genesis or anything else, we will know the purity with which we are studying it and holding it and coming to our conclusions with the extent to which it draws us to this table where we are overwhelmed by our brokenness, our rebellion, our insufficiency, and we are blown away by the sufficiency and grace and love of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died. If we leave Genesis with a puffed-out pride, like, got it all figured out, and not with a deep understanding that the Creator that did all that came and took on flesh and died on the cross for us, we have failed. Because that is what leads us to humility and nothing else. Humility in our relationship with God and humility with one another. Now don't hear me wrong. I think I love theology. I love doctrine. I love studying. But it's nothing without the love of Christ. And I pray that we will be commended as a church that stands for the truth that upholds the authority of God's Word, that declares boldly, especially in a world that needs definition and clarity, this is what God says. But let's not be Ephesus. Let's not be the church that says, dude, you got your doctrine right, but you are the most unloving people I've ever met. Let us be known as a people who hold our theology with all humility, deeply, but as a church that loves just as, if not more, deeply. Amen? Let's pray.
Father God, I praise You for Your grace to us and Your patience with us. I thank You that we have a community of brothers and sisters in Christ who love Your Word and care for Your Word and want nothing more than for the purity of Your Word to be proclaimed. I thank You, Father, for the spirit of humility that I've seen evidenced among many of our brothers and sisters. I know that's only from You. And I pray, Father, you will teach us that individually and corporately you'll give us all a hunger for your word. The Holy Spirit, you'll give us a deep understanding of your word and desire to know and to, and to understand who you are. But I also pray you will birth in us an incredible amount of love and an incredible amount of grace. And we get to the place, Father, where we disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ. We can still hug them and say, can't wait to party with you in heaven. Father, let us celebrate what you have done and not everything we understand or don't understand. Let us focus on who you are and not who we are. Let us proclaim what you have done and nothing good or bad that we have done. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and hope and walk and breathe. Amen.